Thank you. Didn't they used to do that for Johnny Carson? Yeah. Mmm. The good old days. Just kidding. Well, not really. Hey, so thankful to be here this morning. Um, Why don't we go ahead and and pray? Lord, would you um, help your servant out this morning? Lord, would you uh, use me to deliver your message to your people? Would you open our hearts, God, that we might receive um, your message for us? Holy Spirit, we, we just pray that you would be very present in this moment that you would move powerfully in our lives, and that you would communicate with us individually, Lord, drawing us into your presence and drawing us into the future that you've got planned. Might we, Lord, be full of you. Might we be full of your Holy Spirit power that we might overcome the enemy and overcome the temptations of uh, the devil. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Now, Uh, Today, I'm going to attempt to probably uh, do the impossible. I want to cover the entire book of Esther. Yes, one of the most familiar books of the Bible. I want to kind of count on you to kind of fill in some of the blanks because I know for sure that I won't be able to cover every detail. But before we really jump into that, I I just want to acknowledge that uh, 2020 was a challenging year, right? But just because we're into 2021, we're not guaranteed that all of our troubles will die down. Uh, It is more likely, I think, that we're fast approaching some additional challenges in the coming days, whether that's in three days or three months. I believe there's things coming at us that we really have to be prepped for. And, And with that said, I think we can choose our reaction to what the future might be uh, in those scenarios by deciding what our posture would be before God. Not necessarily deciding what our reaction will be to what might come our direction, but deciding what our posture will be before the Lord. If we get our posture right before God himself, if we get that part right, then everything else will play to his advantage and our reactions to the stimuli will be pleasing to him. If we get our posture right before God. Now, this posture, for lack of a better way of saying it, the only way I could come up with saying it is that we would be yes men, that we would be yes people, that we would be yes women, that we would say yes to God, that we would say yes to whatever uh, you would have me do, God. I I would say yes to whatever you want me to be, whatever you want me to become. I'm going to say yes to that, God. Not maybe, uh, not I'm going to think about it, not maybe I'll get around to it one day, but that we would say yes and we would take action and we would do become and be who God has created us to be, that we would say yes, that we wouldn't hold anything back, that we would just be people who said yes, whatever you want, God. I'm down. Now, I know that's a bold, that's kind of a bold thing, right? Because we want to have the ability to kind of hold parts of ourselves back when when we feel like we're going to put ourselves in harm's way. But there's this great gap between knowing what to do and actually doing it. And I believe that gap starts to close when we start saying yes. And that's unique and that's special because God can work with people who are willing to say yes, people who are willing to take that posture before him, not holding anything back, but saying, yes, God, whatever you want. And then whatever might come at you, you'll have the appropriate reaction to those moments. I think of the book of Esther as 
kind of a history of one major crisis. In fact, this entire history is documented like a story of how the Jewish people were delivered from certain annihilation. And and in that story, you can see God working behind the scenes. And I, I find that intriguing. Uh, especially as we as we look at our own you know landscape of the culture that we're living in now but i would say this that you have to say yes to god when you face crisis when you face crisis it's important to say yes to god this is an entire crisis book if we could just put it that way i don't know what the future holds and you and i we could spend a lot of time trying to determine what the future might hold and we can wear ourselves out trying to figure out how this affects this and how this plays into that who's going to do this and who's going to do that you can wear yourself out and you can become a true wonderful worry wart i know that i know i'm selling that really good you know warts and all And we can sit around and worry about these things. But if we're willing to accept the fact that God is God in the good times and God is God in the bad times, that he's got all this under control, then we can get to that point where we understand that we are never going into a situation that is so tough that God can't take care of it, that God can't take control of it. It's not like he loses control as you're driving down the highway of life and you start to fishtail. No, that'll never happen with God. God's got everything under control. When we face instability and uncertainty, most of us, we really just want to hit the panic button, don't we? We just want to say, whoa, God, jump in. I I don't know what I'm doing. Or or we're just going to try to grasp at straws and take care of everything ourselves. It's this response to a crisis that many times is negative. You know, I just learned recently that playing possum is not what I thought it was. How many of you guys have heard of the phrase playing possum when maybe you pretend to be asleep in church so you don't feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit, right? Wake up over there. Wake up. You know, just kidding. We're all awake. But the truth of the matter is, is that playing possum is is a well-known phrase, but many people believe it's just a good act. But according to scientists, the possum is actually in tonic immobility. Its body enters into a catatonic state in response to fear. So playing possum isn't an act. It's an involuntary reaction to a threat. Now, you, you might be thinking, well, you know, Anthony, I don't, I don't play possum. But I would say this. You probably have an involuntary reaction to a threat. Maybe fight or flight, right? It's an involuntary reaction, and and you don't know exactly, you know, what you're going to do until the stimuli finds you, until you find yourself in the moment of a crisis. But saying yes to God, acquiring that posture before him, that will provide for you what you really, what you really want, a level head, a calm spirit, and a vibrant faith. If you choose that posture of saying yes to God ahead of time, not trying to figure out the the different scenarios and the different situations and the different stimuli, instead of trying to figure all that out, we just say, you know what? My posture before God is yes. Then you can acquire that calm spirit, that vibrant faith, that level head that you so need and so want. So here in this book, the book of Esther, We are introduced to one major crisis. And then this crisis is overruled by God's providence. It was the crisis that the Jewish people might possibly be exterminated. But that whole tragedy was averted because God was involved. So number two, let me move us on. We need to say yes to God when we can't see or hear God. 
Now, the name of God is not mentioned in this book of the Bible. And, and that's left some theologians disgruntled. They, they would say, well, you know, this is not a real biblical book because his name's not mentioned. Even Martin Luther would say that he wished that the book was never written. But he said that about James too. Martin Luther wasn't right about everything. But just because God's name isn't written, that doesn't mean that God isn't in the book. God's name is withheld, I believe, on purpose from this book. God is silently moving behind the scenes. Lightning doesn't burst. Visions don't occur. Uh, There are no spectacular, miraculous moments. But here God is working through common human events. And do you know what my life is full of? Common human events, right? Is that not what your life involves as well? I mean, if you have lightning flashing every few minutes, call me up. I want to see what that's like. And I don't mean about, anyway, moving on. But here's the thought. God moves in those moments. Providence is God standing in the shadows, watching over his people and protecting them. While we can't see God always, God always sees us. He has his eyes on you. He knows more about you than you might even understand. He, he understands the details. He sees where you're about to step. He sees where he's leading you. He knows it all. Number three, moving on. Say yes to God when you want to be in charge. Now, I know nobody else struggles with this in the house this morning, but you know the truth of the matter is that a lot of us want to be in charge, but God's actually in charge. I just need to make sure that you understand that. We want to be in charge. We, we grapple for control, or I grapple for control. You know, and I know this is probably just for me, but I grapple for control. Many times, really, what's driving that is fear. We want to control the situation. We want to control the environment that we're in because we're afraid that we're going to get hurt. That's what normally drives fear. But the scripture says in Colossians chapter 1, verse 17, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So he's going to hold it together for you. He was before all this anyway, and he's going to hold all of this together. It doesn't depend upon you and your ability to grapple and manage and control the situation, circumstances, or any of those things that you might be traveling through, but it really just depends upon God. Isn't that a relief? Just wipe the sweat off your brow, my friend, and enjoy the fact that God is holding everything together. See, it's his providence He's working the world's events out so that in the end, his will, his will is accomplished. Daniel chapter 4 verse 35 says, all the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of earth. No one can hold back his hand and say to him, what have you done? See, God doesn't have to give us a report. He doesn't fill out a memo. This is what I did today, Anthony. This is what I did today. This is what I'm going to do in the future. He doesn't do any of those things. Fortunately, he makes a good many things understandable and that information available to us. But the shadows really is where many times he is. In the shadows of humanity, God is working out his will, doing what he will so that he can accomplish his great purpose in this world and in your community and in your life and the life of your family. 
See, we can look to him and we can look for him. And most of these circumstances and many unlikely circumstances and maybe see a glimpse of him over here or a glimpse of him right there or, or a glimpse of him right back there. We might catch the shadow of what God might be doing here and there. But really, it's a trust walk, isn't it? So here we are. We're saying yes to God. Number four, say yes to God as he manages the calendar. As he manages the calendar, as he manages the great timing of the world, we should always say yes to him because God is in charge. You and I, we, we can be on time. I was almost late to my own wedding, I think. I was almost late to this you know, first service. I was in a conversation. You know, here I am, and here you are, and you are on time. It was God's great plan that he orchestrated it so that you would be here at this moment. If it were left up to you or if it were left up to me, we'd probably be running late or so far ahead of time that we would be totally out of whack. But because God is in charge, we are on time. See, we're his children, Amen. And he's our father, and he's moving us along. He's getting us dressed in the morning, making sure that you brush your teeth, getting you buckled up in the van, and then getting you to church on time. That's God, your father. Interestingly, Alexander the Great, one of those kings of this time, was flexing his military muscle, trying to expand his kingdom to the east. Uh, And there's this great clash that would take place between the east and the west. King Xerxes, who's mentioned in this book, is trying to conquer the Greeks, and the Greeks are trying to conquer the Persian Empire. King Xerxes has a rather large kingdom. So he has all these nobles gathered together. We're going to read about this uh, for a six-month-long party. Don't say amen to that, or I'll write your name down. Just a joke. I think what he's trying to do during this six-long month-long party. He's trying to sell this idea of going to war against the Greeks because the Greeks pose a great threat to their way of life. So he's recruiting, he's politicking the nobles and the princes so that they'll go to war with him. It's a persuasive time. He's persuading them to go to war. So if you've got your scripture, look with me at Esther chapter 1. Esther chapter 1. We're going to jump into uh, verse 4. The scripture says this is what happened during the time of Xerxes. The Xerxes, he ruled over 127 provinces stretching from India to Cush. This is a great land. At that time, King Xerxes reigned from the royal throne in the citadel of Susa. And in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all of his nobles and officials, the military leaders of Persia and Media, the princes and the nobles and the provinces present. For a full 180 days, he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor of his glory of his majesty so this is interesting isn't it we know this that the babylonian empire fell to the medes and the persians and then the persian empire would eventually fall to the grecian empire that was predicted in the book of daniel prophetically written ahead of time so a power shift will occur does occur from the east to the west And as you look at the God of history, be amazed, my friends, how God pulls the strings. Alexander the Great established pockets of Greek culture here and there. He built roads all over the place. He wanted a a worldwide common language, which would be Greek. So that sets up the New Testament, which was written in Greek, so that almost anyone could pick up a manuscript or a letter and understand it. 
At that time, the time of Christ and the time of the early church, this is important because of his influence, a language was set up and a road system was developed so that even the Apostle Paul could walk here, he could walk there, people could go here and could go there and preach the gospel all over the place. It was the timing that was amazing to me. That's why the Bible says in Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 7, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law. This is Jesus Christ. This is who we just celebrated his birthday to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons and daughters. And because you are sons and daughters, God has sent his spirit, the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. What an encouraging collection of verses. But if you look at the crux of that, that is the timing of God and the fullness of the timing. God's in charge of the calendar. God's in charge of the timing. God is in, God is in control of history, but to be in control of history, he has to be in, in control of the present moment we're living in. He absolutely is. And because God is in charge, we are on time. You're here at the specific moment, on the specific day, at the specific time for God's great purpose. Who knows what God's got planned for you in the future? But without you being right here at this moment, I feel like we would be absolutely cheated because we've been brought together for a greater purpose than we could ever imagine. Now, Esther is a unique book. It's the only one of two books that was named after a woman. I'm going to introduce you to uh, uh, five main characters to maybe help you understand the basics of this story. You're probably already familiar with many of these people. The first character is King Xerxes. He's over Persia. He's kind of a regal-looking kingly man. Uh, the setting is Persia. It's uh, 486 BC. Xerxes is the king, and he's preparing to lobby his leaders for war. He does that, as I already mentioned, by throwing a six-month party, bringing people together, this great party animal, King Xerxes, in this moment was thinking of his queen, whom he hadn't seen in a little while. Her name was Queen Vashti. Well, King Xerxes is most likely in this story inebriated, probably drunk, and he decides to show off his woman in all of her beauty. But the story takes an unexpected twist, and she refused to obey the order of her husband, the order of her king. So Queen Vashti, you know, basically had some convictions. She wasn't going to become the sex object and oogled by a bunch of her husband's drunk buddies. She wasn't about to become the closing act of a, of a six-month party. And the result is that the king is so embarrassed in front of all of his friends and all those leaders, and he's so angry, he's angry on his part, he banishes her. Look with me at verses 10 and 12 of chapter 1. On the seventh day, when King Xerxes was in high spirits from wine, so he's drunk, he commanded the seven eunuchs who served him to bring before him Queen Vashti, wearing the royal crown in order to display her beauty, and to the people and nobles, for she was lovely to look at. But when the attendants delivered the king's command, Queen Vashti refused to come. Then the king became furious, and he burned with anger. Now, secular history will tell us that King Xerxes was known for having these rages, these fits of rage. He would become angry and do wild things. There was once 
a bridge he had built across a river. Uh, 300 men uh, gathered to build it. A lot of work. They were almost complete. Uh, but then a coastal storm wiped out the bridge. And that storm also took out uh, many of his ships and killed many of his other men. And he was so angry that he went down to the sea and started beating the waves of the ocean for taking the lives of his men and destroying his ships. That's kind of weird, isn't it? So after duking it out with the ocean, what does this weird man do? But he goes ahead and he has all 300 of those men who built the bridge killed. So there you go. That's the caliber of King Xerxes. Just a a little wild. You don't want to make this guy uh, uh, mad. But here we have the queen doing something here. So verse 16 says, Then Mamukin replied, in the presence of the king and the nobles. Queen Vashti has done wrong, not only against the king, but also against the nobles and the peoples of the province of King Xerxes. For the queen's conduct will become known to all the women. And so they will despise their husbands and say, King Xerxes commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, but she would not come. This very day, the Persian and the Median women of the nobility will have heard about the queen's conduct and will respond to all the king's nobles in the same way. There will be no end of disrespect and discord. (laughs) It almost sounds like he's trying to avert a women's movement, right? This is not awesome. This is a different culture. This is a different time. We're, We're not advocating any of this, of course. But at that time, it was a man's world. And the king, who couldn't keep his wife in line, would probably be looked at as someone who could not keep the kingdom in line. And so to save face with the leaders and all these other people, King Xerxes banishes his wife. And so you go from chapter 2 to, excuse me, from chapter 1 to chapter 2, and within that time period, it's probably about a year, King Xerxes fights a war against the Greeks, the Battle of Thermopylae. The advantage uh, in his situation was that he had a good deal, many, many more men. He had a large kingdom. He, he could bring all these men together to attack the Greeks. You, you are no doubt familiar with the Battle of Thermopylae. Uh, he had that advantage. Um, he had won the support of all those leaders that he was courting. Uh, but he lost that battle, of course. So it was a low point for him. And you pick up with him at this low point in verse 2 of chapter 2. Then the king's um, personnel attendants proposed, let's search Let a search be made for beautiful young virgins for the king. Let the king appoint commissioners in every providence of his realm and bring all these beautiful young women into the harem at the citadel of Susa. Let them be placed under the care of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women, and let beauty treatments be given to them. Then let the young women who please... Excuse me. Then let the young women who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This advice, uh, not so ironically, appealed to the king, and he followed it. So shock of all shocks, the vote was unanimous. Every man thought a beauty pageant was a good idea, and I'm sure they all signed up to be judges. So all the most beautiful women in the entire kingdom were brought to Susa, now known as Iran, for the mother of all beauty pageants. Now, there was a citadel there in Susa, as the scripture says in verse 5. There was a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin named Mordecai, son of Jared, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, who had been carried into exile from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, among those taken captive with Jehoiakim, king of Judah. Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah, 
whom he had brought up because she was neither she had neither father nor mother. This young woman, who was also known as Esther, had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when her father and mother died. When the king's order and edict had been proclaimed, many young women were brought to the citadel of Susa and put under the care of Haggai. Esther also was taken to the king's palace and entrusted to Haggai, who had charged excuse me, who had charge of the harem. She pleased him and won his favor. Immediately, he provided her with beauty treatments and special food. He assigned her seven female attendants selected from the king's palace and moved her and her attendants into the best place of the harem. So number five, consider this with me. Say yes to God after you've grown apathetic. This is not an accusation that you have grown apathetic. But if I look at my own life, there are moments, there are dark moments where my faith has become apathetic. It's less vibrant. It's less energetic. It's not as committed. And if you're being honest with yourself too, there are moments of apathy in your own faith. And in those moments, this is what I would say to you, say yes to God after you have grown apathetic. There's a great jolt that comes out of this. Going back to the scripture, this is the first recorded beauty contest. There is a province. There's the providence of God. And God is overruling, I think, some terrible decisions. What Mordecai did in this situation was wrong. It was forbidden for, uh, by Jewish law for a, a Jew to marry a pagan. And I think there was some apathy here. I think they had become apathetic And they were in an apathetic state. I think that maybe they had even backslidden. They had not returned with the rest of the Jews to Jerusalem. But instead, they were hanging out in the comfort of an enemy territory. They were not given over to God's law. But God is still in control to preserve the Jewish people. And he's going to still work with these two individuals because they were willing to say yes after they had become apathetic. See, if she lost this beauty contest, just to put this in perspective, she would be placed in the harem to become a concubine, reduced to that of a sexual slave for a pagan king. And that wasn't God's plan. And so I think there's some bad decisions here. So when you find yourself reaping the rewards of an apathetic faith, here's my advice. Here's my my desire for you. For I've seen this play out in my own life. When you find yourself in that state and you're reaping the rewards of an apathetic faith, return to God. Just just turn around and return to God. Repent from your wicked ways. Repent from these apathetic ways and rededicate your future to Him. When you return, you come into God's arms. When you repent, you say, I'm not going to partake in any of that anymore. You're not offering this perfect guarantee. You're just saying, to the best of my ability, I am not going back there. I'm not going to participate in those things. And then you're going to rededicate your future to the one and only God who cares so much for you. And when you do that, you reap the reward of a rejuvenated faith. When you repent, when you return, and when you rededicate, rejuvenation can be yours, and you can push off the doldrums of an apathetic faith, my friends. So look with me at verse 10. Esther had not revealed her nationality. 
and family background because Mordecai had forbidden her to do so. Every day he walked back and forth near the courtyard of the harem to find out how Esther was and what was happening to her. This is not the sign of a man who's made a good decision. He's worried and he's rightfully worried. This is a person who chose really not to obey the will of God. A person who chooses not to obey the will of God will reap similar rewards. There's no rest when you're disobedient. But when you're obedient, you sleep really good at night. In fact, I see somebody sleeping really good right now. Verse 12, before a young woman's turn came to go into the king exerces, she had to complete 12 months of beauty treatments. Hold on, am I right? Reading that right? Prescribed for women, six months with oil and myrrh and six with perfumes and cosmetics. That's a lot of beauty treatments and that's a long time. But right here in the middle of all this, you start to see the invisible hand of God moving and his finger stops on this young woman. Stops right there on Esther. And when I say Esther, I want you to think of one of the most beautiful women in the entire land. She'd probably look a lot like Kristen. Esther was a Jewish orphan girl who continued really to advance through the beauty pageant round after round. She's probably about 18 years old. She breezes through eventually out of all those uh, beautiful virgins assembled from 127 different provinces. Esther is the one who catches King Xerxes' eye. Esther becomes the wife of King Xerxes, and she is the queen of the land. Look with me at chapter 2, verse 15. When the turn came for Esther, the young woman Mordecai had adopted, the daughter of his uncle, to go to the king, she asked for nothing other than Haggai, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the harem, anything that he suggested. And Esther won favor with everyone who saw her. And she was taken to King Xerxes in the royal residence in the 10th month, the month of Tibet, in the seventh year of his reign. Now the king was attracted to Esther more than any of the other women. And she won his favor and approval more than any of the other virgins. So he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. And the king gave a great banquet, Esther's banquet, for all the nobles and officials. He proclaimed a holiday throughout the provinces. Some say that they didn't get taxed for an entire year. That's a pretty good deal, isn't it? And distributed gifts with royal liberty. Look at verse 19. When the virgins were assembled a second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. So, moving forward, there's Mordecai. He's a judge now. But Esther had kept uh, secret her family background and nationality. So, just as Mordecai had told her to do, for she continued to follow Mordecai's instructions as she had done when she was uh, bringing her up. Now, I think one of the greatest characters in this story is Mordecai. He's a tough cookie, a man who does become resolute, okay? He grows. He's the older cousin of Esther. We've already kind of covered that. He, too, is Jewish, okay? And in this story, he's being woven in kind of as a secondary, secondary level of the story. One day, while Mordecai is around the palace, probably at the gate, he overhears an assassination plot for the king. He quickly takes those details to Esther, and Esther takes them to the officials, and they act on it, and they save King Xerxes' life. And for all of that risk, and for all that courage, and for all that work that Mordecai put out, what does he get in return? 
but his name is just simply recorded in the Chronicles, that someday he might be honored for his efforts. So he, he goes through this entire situation. He takes this huge risk to protect the king's life, and, and all he gets is his name written down in a book. There was no reward for him in that moment. And this is what I would say for, to you and I. Number six, say yes to God after you experience disappointment. When you feel like your contribution, when you feel like what you have brought to the table, when you believe what you've done, the investment that you have made was overlooked and unacknowledged and underappreciated or never appreciated, consider this, to still say yes to God even in the midst of those disappointments. It's been said that big doors swing on small hinges, but there in this moment, there's no reward. Later on, there will be a reward and, and it'll change the you know, texture and scope of the story. But God is setting the stage. Providentially, he's getting things done. And I would just say this to go along with this saying yes to God when and after you experience disappointment. This is a key fact in life that unselfish living goes largely unrewarded. That we will find ourselves giving without recognition. But all that time, God is keeping track. And there will be a great reward for you. I believe it in my heart of hearts that God will sit down and say, yes, thank you for doing this. Thank you for this. And there will be a reward. But disappointments are many times God's great appointments in our life. He has an appointed moment for you to be disappointed. (laughs) (laughs) That's not very encouraging, is it? But the truth is, is that we have to say yes to God even in those moments because they were true appointments by him. Number seven, also say yes to God when you face inevitable backlash or persecution. Now, I'll just say this. I don't know what the future holds for us, what the future holds for our country, what the future holds for the church, or for me individually, or for you individually, for us collectively, or for your family. We don't know. But the bottom line is that no matter what happens, we need to say yes to God when you face the inevitable backlash or persecution. See, there's one more character I want to introduce you to here in just a second. His name is Haman, and he is a conniving, underhanded egotistical little tyrant and those are all his good traits Haman is Xerxes number two man and he is quite the deceiver Haman loves the attention of people in fact he demanded and demanded that everybody would bow down to him that they would take a knee and that they would bow down to him whenever he showed up in a location but Mordecai this, this, this man here that we love so much, he, he, he won't bow because he's Jewish. Haman's an Amalekite, and they were intense enemies. The Amalekites hated God's chosen people. But more importantly, because Mordecai was Jewish, he stood in stark contrast to the rest of the world, to the culture around them. When you really follow God, my friends, you will stand in contrast to the culture around you. And that's a good thing. But he would never take a knee. He would never bow down because he would only bow down for one, and that would be God, the one true God. He would not bow before an image. He would have never bowed before a man. And that bothered little Haman so much that he had this amazingly bad reaction. Look with me at chapter 3, verse 8. The scripture says, Then Haman said to King Xerxes, There's a certain people 
dispersed among the peoples and all the provinces of your kingdom who keep themselves separate. Their customs are different from those of all the other people, and they do not obey the king's law. It is not the king's best interest to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them, and I will give 10,000 talents of silver to the king's administrators for the royal treasury. So the king took his signet ring from his finger and gave it to Haman, and the enemy of the Jews took that signet ring and signed the decree. But the king, he said, keep the money and do with the people what you please. He never investigated it. He just took his word for it, and he made the decree without even giving much thought to the entire situation. Why would he do that? Well, he just lost an amazing war that he thought he was going to win. I'm sure he has had severe financial loss from all that. And if he hears about some troublemakers in some part of his kingdom, uh, why not eliminate them? Why not just confiscate their assets for the good of the kingdom? It was smart politics. He's not thinking. He's just reacting. He's just doing what corrupt politicians and leaders do. That's what they do. And then verse 13, dispatches were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with the order to destroy, kill, and annihilate the Jews, young and old, women and children, on a single day, the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. So Haman, I would assume, is feeling like he, he's going to get the last laugh in. Mordecai hears of this news, and he's fearful for the Jews, God's chosen people. Now understand this. When Esther came to the palace, Mordecai told her not to divulge the fact that she was Jewish because that would pose some problems potentially. But now Mordecai sends word to her and says, listen, you're going to have to get involved here. You are going to have to intervene on behalf of your people. And Esther's response is quite telling. That sounds easy enough, but you need to know that I haven't seen the king in the last 30 days. I haven't even been in his presence in the last 30 days. And she's insinuating that she's afraid that she's fallen out of favor with the king and that he's moved on uh, to the new flavor of the month. And Esther knows by law that if she goes to the king without being summoned by the king, and if he doesn't invite her forward by extending the golden scepter, then she will be put to death. So number eight, say yes to God when you have the opportunity to get involved. Say yes to God when you have the opportunity to get involved. So by way of messenger, Esther conveys her fears to Mordecai. Mordecai responds this way. He says in Esther chapter 4, verses 12 through 14, this is the crux of the entire book. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows, but that you have come to a royal position for such a time as this. God's in charge of the calendar. The plan and purpose of God will not and will never be thwarted. But if you refuse to get involved in what God is doing in the world today, God will bypass you and find somebody else who's willing to do the work. See again God's providence. Consider Caesar Augustus when he was signing that tax bill, right, that brought Mary and Joseph back uh, to the hometown of Bethlehem. 
They would not have gone unless that little bill was signed by Caesar Augustus, taking them out of Nazareth and taking them back to Bethlehem where the Messiah would be born. What if somebody stood over the shoulder of, of that emperor and said, hey, listen, by signing this bill, you're going to help, help fulfill prophecy. He probably would have said, I don't know anything about prophecy, but I know a lot about taxes. I'm here to get that money. But God's providential hand was moving. And sure enough, a chain of events were set in place to carry out his will. Mordecai in this moment is challenging her. He's saying, Esther, it's time to take a stand for God and with God for God's people. And did you catch that last line? Who knows? But that for you have come to this royal position for such a time as this. You know, remember, God's managing your calendar. You're going to arrive at certain junctures because God had planned for you to be there a long time ago. You're on time because God is in charge. Mordecai is pleading with this young woman whom he raised and taught to say yes to God. And he's saying, God is unfolding his plan, Esther, and you're a part of it. And if you have the courage to trust him and his plan and take that stand, God will use you. So number nine, say yes to God, even if you're afraid. Esther chapter 4, verses 15 and 16 tells us, Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai, Go, gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, neither day. And I and my maids will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Wow, what a woman of God. Esther knows she's inadequate. She understands that she's playing with her own life. She understands that she's facing some circumstances that are overwhelming. But she commits to fasting and then approaching the king, even though it's against the law. And she says, even if it costs me my life, this is what I'm going to do. And I see something else in the middle of all this. When a person comes to the very end of themselves, like Esther's come to the very end of herself, and they realize that they're inadequate and they are in great need of God's help, there's a brokenness that starts to surface in their life. All the pride disappears. All the self-reliance disappears. All that uh, false confidence dissipates and a real brokenness starts to set up on the inside of that person. And that's good because I've been on both sides. So number 10, say yes to God as he provides for you the opportunity to acquire brokenness. Nancy DeMoss wrote a, um, quite an article. Allow me to read a portion of it to you. It's a contrast between proud and broken people. Our goal and our desire is to be broken, much like I think Esther was broken, willing and available and in desperate need of God's help. In her article, she says, proud people focus on the failures of others. Broken people are overwhelmed with a sense of their own spiritual need. Proud people have a critical fault-finding spirit. They look at everyone else's faults with a microscope, but their own with a telescope. Broken people are compassionate. They can forgive much because they know how much they have been forgiven. Proud people are self-righteous. They look down on others. Broken people esteem others better than themselves. Proud people have an independent, self-sufficient spirit. 
Broken people have a dependent spirit and they recognize their need for others. Proud people have to prove that they are right. Broken people are willing to yield the right to be right. Proud people are self-protective of their time, their rights, and their reputation. Broken people are self-denying. Proud people desire to be served. Broken people are motivated to serve others. Proud people desire to be a success. Broken people are motivated to be faithful and to make others a success. Proud people desire self-advancement. Broken people desire to promote others. Proud people are wounded when others are promoted and then they are overlooked. Broken people are eager for others to get the credit. They rejoice when others are lifted up. Proud people have a subconscious feeling. This ministry, this church, they should be thankful to have me and all of my gifts. Broken people's heart attitude is I don't deserve to have a part of any ministry. They know that they have nothing to offer God except the life of Jesus flowing through their broken lives. Proud people are self-conscious. Broken people are not concerned with self at all. Proud people keep, themselves, keep others at arm's length and broken people are willing to risk getting close to others and taking risks of loving intimately. It's quite a list and the list goes on. But for 2021, I believe we can embrace the opportunity we have to acquire brokenness in our life. For I believe it moves the hand of God and the heart of God. It makes us absolutely useful to Him so that we can see God's will fulfilled in our lives and in the life of our nation and in our world. So all the Jewish people pray and they fast. And then on the fourth day, Esther begins to walk into the palace where King Xerxes is. I can't imagine what's going on uh, through her mind. Queen Vashti had been banished not for appearing when invited by the king, but how much worse would it be to appear uninvited? So physically, I'm sure she was spent after fasting for three days, but she's got the strength of God flowing through her uh, veins. And so she walks to the throne, hopeful that she'll be extended the scepter and not the sword. So number 11, look at this, say yes to God in collaboration. So God will work with you and he'll, he'll adjust you and he'll use you as his tool. You'll become his vessel. It's a collaborative effort. Consider the scripture here as we look at Esther chapter 5, verses 2 and 4. When he saw Queen Esther standing in the court, he was pleased with her and held out uh, to her the gold scepter that was in his hand. So Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. Then the king asked, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be given to you if it pleases the king, replied Esther. Let the king, together with Haman, come to, today to a banquet that I have prepared for him. So Esther has a banquet for them, and Xerxes asks her again, and she says, come back tomorrow, just the two of you, for a, another banquet. So she's building suspense. So Haman returns home, I'm sure, feeling pretty good about himself. He's bragging to his family, hey, I've got another, you know, dinner appointment with the king and the queen, you know. But then Haman says this weird thing in Esther chapter 5, verse 13. He says, but all of that, all that high honor gives me no satisfaction as long as I see that Jew Mordecai sitting at the king's gate. So hearing 
This discouragement, his wife and his friends encourage Haman to talk to uh, the king about, you know, hanging Mordecai on the gallows. And Haman loves that idea and he decides to embrace it. Now, that same night back at the palace, King Xerxes can't sleep. Maybe, you know, he's wondering, you know, I've offered the queen half of my kingdom. What is she going to ask for it next? Well, he can't sleep. What's he going to do if he can't sleep and he's worried perhaps? And he snaps his fingers and a servant rolls in. And he says, read to me the chronicles of the past. So if anything will put you to sleep, it'll probably be the minutes of, you know, last week's uh, board meeting or <clears throat> previous staff meeting. Anyway, moving on. The portion that is read for Xerxes included the time that Mordecai discovered the assassination of plot against Xerxes uh, that was kind of engineered by these two bodyguards. And Xerxes was anything, Xerxes asked, has anything been done to reward Mordecai? And the reader says, no, your highness, nothing has ever been done to reward Mordecai. Nothing has ever been done to honor this man. And so in God's providence really is different than the miraculous. A miraculous event is where he intercepts the ordinary events and intercedes dramatically. But God works also in the providence where he manipulates the ordinary events so the, the end result is his will. So I see a lot of divine manipulation right here of ordinary events. It just so happened that Esther became the queen, right? It just so happened that Mordecai hadn't been rewarded. It just so happened that the king couldn't sleep. Or was it a lot of divine manipulation? Probably some of that, right? So the next time Xerxes honors Mordecai by having him placed on the royal horse and paraded down the street. The irony is that King Xerxes instructs Haman to be the one to lead him around. And Haman has to announce to everybody, this is what is done for the man the king, uh, the king delights to honor. And he'd walk around and he'd lead this man through the city on this horse. He'd say, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. So how embarrassing is that for Haman, right? Well, it had to be vindication for Mordecai. The celebration probably didn't last that long because that date is fast approaching when the Jews will be uh, killed. So any joy was short-lived since Mordecai's mind is on Esther's meeting with the king that would take place in just a few hours. And Haman really can't pout that long because he's got to go to that dinner appointment anyway. And this, in that moment, is the moment of truth for Esther. The king asks in that dinner, he says, what's your request? So look at number 12. Say yes to God when he expects you to be bold. When you have the opportunity to speak for God, when you have the opportunity to, to deliver his message to people, either by words or by deed or by example, do so with great boldness. You might feel funny doing it, but let me just say this, that God's called you to be bold. This is not the time to sit back and be bland and milk toast. This is the time to step into your calling, to step into your anointing, to be bold for what God's asked you to do. And I believe you'll be rewarded for it. But look at Esther chapter 7, verses 3 through 7. It says, The queen Esther answered, If I have found favor with you, O king, and if it pleases your majesty, grant me my life. This is my petition. And spare my people. This is my request. For I and my people have been sold for destruction and slaughter and annihilation. 
If we had merely been sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept quiet because no such distress would justify disturbing the king. Now, remember, only Mordecai knows that she's Jewish. King Xerxes asked the queen, well, who, who is he? Where is the man who has dared to do such a thing? And Esther said, the adversary and the enemy is this vile Haman. And then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. The king got up in a rage. Remember, this is the man who killed all those bridge workers, left his wine and went out into the palace garden to be alone. Crazy, right? And then a few minutes later, Xerxes returns to the room just as the exact moment that Esther is reclining on the couch and Haman's pawing her, begging for his life. And can you imagine how inappropriate that looked to King Xerxes? There's this man begging for his life, but it looks like something else. That's why in Esther chapter 7, verse 8, the scripture says, The king exclaimed, Will he even molest the queen while she is with me in the house? That's pretty bad, isn't it? This man doesn't look good for his life. And I love what happens next. There's a servant standing nearby in one of the king's palaces. He picks up, uh, you know, uh, O king... By the way, I was walking by Haman's house, and he had uh, some gallows built out in the front. And I talked to one of his neighbors, and his neighbors told me he was going to hang Mordecai on those gallows. And, uh, you know, Mordecai, the man who saved your life, and King Xerxes reaches this boiling point. He says, hey, listen, you go out, and you take Haman and hang him on his own gallows instead. And that's what happened. Haman hangs in the noose of his own making. So this is a story that God could only orchestrate. Something that he could have only planned and executed. While the name of God is never mentioned in these 10 chapters, you can't miss the presence of God. Although God is invisible, God is invincible. Nothing can stop the will of God. Nothing can stop what God's achieving and doing in the world today. See, God used Esther, this orphan girl who had both inner and outer beauty. Xerxes chose her because of her outer beauty, but God chose her because of her inner character. He knew he could count on her. And I believe God knows that he can count on you. He looks at you and he says, there are things I want to do with your life if you are willing to surrender and say yes to me. Esther faced her fears, and she was willingly placing her life in God's hands as she would be used to save the Jewish people. God used the courage of this young woman as a vehicle to save many, many people. And she said yes to God. So as the worship team comes, I would just say I've got three final thoughts for you. I would just say this, in this time, in this place, in 2021, face your fears with others. Too often, we try to be the lone ranger. Our tendency is to tough it out and do this on our own, isn't it? We think, I, I, I can handle this on my own. But the church is a body with different believers, with different responsibilities, working together. First Corinthians chapter 12 verse 26 says, if one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. When you share your fears with others, you lighten the load in your own life. There's some things that you just can't do on your own. There are some things in life that you shouldn't do on your own. 
Esther didn't turn around and say, I'm just going to spend some personal, private time with the Lord. She involved a group of people. She says, I'm going to get all the people Mordecai knows, and then I'm, I'm going to get my maidservants, and we're going to fast, and we're going to pray, and she depended upon the Lord. So face your fears with others in 2021. Also, number two, get spiritually prepared. If we were in a locker room, I would be shouting this to you right now. This is the time to get prepared. We don't know what the future holds. We don't know what's coming at us. But you might miss your opportunity to develop the strength that you need. You might miss your opportunity to get your head on straight. This is the time to get spiritually prepared for what God is attempting to accomplish in the world today through your life. You can be a part of what he's doing if you're willing to say yes. But you've got to get spiritually prepared. Don't miss out on this opportunity. Even Esther took time to fast and she took time to pray. She set aside these moments where she would grow in strength with the Lord. And when she stood before the king, she didn't stand on her own strength, but she had supernatural strength. God loves you, loves you so very much that you can gain from this moment more than you could ever imagine. Consider John chapter 4, verse 18. There is no fear in love But perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. Fall in love with God, praying and reading his word. Allow him to build you up. He will not put too much on you to break you, but he will put just enough on you to build you up for the future. Become spiritually prepared for the future. There's one last thought I want to share with you. Do God's will no matter what. When Esther risked her life and she made her request, she's not doing it in some melodramatic soap opera type thing. Life and death hung in the balance. No wonder she was fearful. And I, I don't know about you, but there's not a week that goes by when I'm not afraid of something. It could be a financial concern. It could be a relational issue. It could be a situation at work or church. Or maybe an intimidating individual I've got to talk to about Jesus, right? Following God's call will always be frightening because God will call you to do what you cannot do on your own. So remember what the word tells us in Psalm 118, verse 6. The Lord is with me. I will not be afraid. What can mere man do to me? 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7 says, For God did not give us the spirit of timidity, but the spirit of power, of love, and self-discipline. When we feel those fears coming on, I found that that's when God does his most amazing work. It's a paradox. When I put my confidence in myself, I didn't become consumed with fear, uh, and, and I fail. But, but when I put my confidence in God and say, Yes, his plan always shows up, and he always accomplishes what he wanted to do in that moment. And so I want to end with this little observation about God, one that no doubt you're familiar with. You can approach this king, and he will always welcome you. He will always listen. He will always extend 
the golden scepter because he longs to have that personal relationship with you specifically. There will never be rejection from God. He loves you oh so much. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me? Lord, in this moment, you are clearing out a sacred space, really, in the hearts of your people. And Lord, this story might be inspirational. But Lord, might we be inspired to say yes to you? Might that be our posture for this upcoming year? Might we, Lord, find ourselves already determined to not say maybe, to not say I'll think about it, not to say no, but to say the very opposite, to say yes to you. That our posture before you, before you and you alone, Lord, is yes, whatever you want to do with me, whatever you want me to be, whatever you want me to become, yes. I'm a yes man. I'm a yes woman. I'm a yes young person. I'm saying yes, this is who I am, Lord. This is my posture before you. And so, Lord, as we stop, really, in our hearts, and as your spirit moves out over your people, and as you stir up on the inside, Lord, of your believers, of your Esthers, Lord, would you stir up faith to say yes this coming year? In your name, Jesus, we pray. If you are so moved, the altar will be open during this next worship song where if you need to return, if you need to repent, if you need to rededicate your future to the God, the God that loves you so much, this is a perfect moment to do this on the very front end of 2021. May I invite you into worship. Trust you are. 
This is Communion Sunday, and I hope you have your elements with you as you, you came in. Let's pause for just one last moment together and partake in the Lord's Supper, remembering what He's done for you and I, for His church. And for those that will be brought into community and to be brought into our family. Lord, we come to you now and we thank you for giving your body for us. Lord, as we hold this piece of bread in our hand, we realize, God, that you willingly gave gave your body, which was abused and bruised. by the stripes that were laid on you, we might be made whole, that we might be healed. And we thank you, God, for giving so freely. We thank you, Jesus, for giving so freely, for becoming that sacrifice for us. We will never forget. We will always remember that it was you. It was you that provided for us the way. Amen. Would you partake of the bread with me? Would you hold the cup in your hand with me as well? And pray with me. Lord, we thank you for your blood. We thank you for washing us with it that we might be clean, that we might be made right with you. We know, Lord, that a sacrifice was necessary. And you became that sacrifice. There's nobody like you, and there's no one who could have done what you've done for us. We thank you for shedding your blood, for liberally applying it to our lives. We humble ourselves and we thank you. And we look to you as our Savior and the Lord of our life. We thank you for your shed blood. Amen. Would you partake of the cup with me? If you'll do me this great favor as we close this service and allow the ushers to dismiss you. But if you need extra prayer or would like to talk or meet with the minister, Pastor Steve and I and Pastor Fontes, I believe, will be available for you and others who would be more than willing to pray for you. You are loved and we're looking forward to 2021. Amen. God is going to do some amazing things. 
Lord, bless your people, we pray in your name, Jesus. May you empower them with your Holy Spirit. May they know, God, no boundaries. Lord, may they know no sickness. Lord, may they know no fear. Lord, lead them on to become, Lord, your servants, Lord, willingly and able and capable of doing whatever you've called them to do. And as you lead them into moments and into situations where they are desperate, Lord, may we stay broken for you and dependent upon you so that you can accomplish your great work in this world. Use us as your vessels, Lord, like you used Esther. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Bless your people.